0: Thank you. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my lips. How many of you are glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can we Just give Jesus a shout of praise. Y'all can do better than that. Come on, let's give Jesus some love this morning. Praise his holy name. Our focus is on the Lord this morning. It is none less than a privilege and an honor to proclaim the word of God to you this morning. It was just over 25 years ago. I could remember like it was yesterday when I was facing 3 to 15 years in prison for drug trafficking. And the Lord saw fit to um, cause my path to cross with a relative who knew and loved the Lord. And this relative shared the gospel with me. And on February 12, 1993, I accepted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I got up off my knees after praying to receive Christ, never looked back. And so I give him the praise and the glory that's do his name this morning. And I just give God glory. So, yes. Will you just uh, pray with me uh, as we enter into God's presence through his word this morning? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, somebody must have found out that I was uh, preaching this morning, and they were kind enough to give me some pointers on what is the definition of a good sermon. It says here that a good sermon has a good beginning and a good ending, and the two should be as close together as possible, and so <laughs> I'm not going to waste y'all's time this morning. I'm just going to dive right into God's Word. Will you meet me in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? And I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as we recite verse 23 in unison together. Those of you who are at home, I welcome you to turn in your Bibles. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And we're going to recite this verse together in unison. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. As the text reads... For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Amen. You could be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, This morning, I want to speak to you from the subject the choice is yours. The choice is yours. Two laws compete within my chest. The one is bad, the other blessed. The new I love, the old I hate. The one I serve will dominate. This is a paraphrase from an anonymous poem that serves to highlight the struggle that happens in the heart of every Christian who places their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Life before Christ was only death all the time, whereas life after Christ could be life or death depending on the realm we choose to operate in. That's pretty much Paul's thesis statement given to us in Romans chapter 6 as Paul arrives at his conclusion somewhat out of necessity. He spends the first half of the book of Romans pretty much addressing two groups of people once formally opposed to one another, now brought together and called to live in peace. Well the problem with two groups of people once formally opposed to one another and now brought together under one roof is that each group brings with it its own baggage. We're talking here about Jews and Gentiles. The apostle Paul perceives that this baggage that each happens to bring is none less than a threat to the gospel that he's been proclaiming. And that baggage relates to a misnomer regarding, in particular, the idea of works-based righteousness. And to eliminate this threat, Paul pretty much presents to his audience a comprehensive, thorough, theological exposition of that gospel. See, a little background will help us to understand. See, life presents to us many mysteries and challenges. And along the way, those mysteries tend to generate various questions in life as we ponder the meaning. But one question in particular that tends to rise in every age is this. How is one made right with God? How are we made right before this holy God? Is there a universal standard to which you and I can appeal to for a sense of right and wrong, or a sense of validation. And if there is such a law, if you will, then what are the ramifications if that law gets broken? Well, Paul answers this question for us in the first few chapters of the book of Romans. He describes, for instance, in chapter 1, what many theologians refer to as the universal moral law. And what Paul says about this moral law is that none of us can play dumb to it. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, for instance, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Paul pretty much says here that there is a universal moral law revealed to us simply through nature that makes each one of us accountable to one another and ultimately accountable to God. Now that would be fantastic news if it weren't for the fact that we violate this law and we break it every single day of our lives. In fact, it's been said that there's not a people group on the face of this earth where thou shalt not kill is an already written on the human heart. The problem with this fact in reality is that ever since the beginning of time, murder continues to run rampant. In every tribe, every people, in every tongue, every culture. You can go to the most remote jungle on earth and find the most primitive people group and tribe and find it already known amongst them that there is a God to which we must give an account. The problem here is that even with a general knowledge and a general revelation of his law, the fact is human nature naturally rebels against that which we know to be true of God. And so the question, how can one be made right with God, it cannot be answered through mere moralism. It cannot be answered through my good faith efforts and works because even on my best day, My biggest enemy is in me. Sin rises in me, causing me to rebel against the knowledge of that which I know to be true of God, causing my conscience to convict me and therefore leaving me stranded on death row. And so we're at a loss and a disadvantage. Paul's point here is that the moralist remains guilty under the law. Well, perhaps if my moral efforts fail me, then maybe my religious, religious efforts can make up the difference. And so Paul switches his focus here from the first group, which were the Gentiles in Romans 1, to the second group, with the, which were the religious Jews at the time. In particular, those who appealed to the Mosaic law as a standard of righteousness. They're described here in chapter 2 as somewhat pompous and proud we were egotistical and condemning of others. Uh, these are folks who like to point the finger at others and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, those guys over there in chapter 1, oh, they really got it messed up. They're filled with envy. Paul said it himself. They're filled with murder and strife. I mean, those guys in chapter 1 are the real dirt bags of society. That is until Paul comes along and says, now, wait a minute now. Who are you calling a dirt bag?" You, therefore, have no excuse, he says. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the others, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You hypocrite is what Paul's saying. If you're going to pretend to be religious, at least practice what you preach, but you can't practice what you preach because the law is too powerful to uphold alone. Run, run, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. And so Paul says here that it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, it's those who obey it, who will be declared righteous in God's sight. And ain't none of y'all doing it. Ain't none of y'all doing it. And so the carnal man here who stands to justify himself under a sense of morality and good works, he stands condemned under natural law. The religious finger-pointer and do-gooder with the superiority complex stands condemned under divine law. And by the time you get to chapter 3, Paul says, oh shucks, the whole world might as well be on the same sinking boat called sin and all could be considered dirtbags in God's eyes because all of us have messed up and blown it. He says in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul says here that if we're trying to justify ourselves by just simply being a goody two-shoes and trying to outdo our neighbor's kindness, then we are only deceiving ourselves. And if we're seeking to earn credibility with God, by just simply tying into our lives a bunch of religious rules and rituals, i got to pray five times a day, i got to do this, i got to do that, then we are just polishing brass on a sinking ship because all of us have sinned and fallen short. Verse 20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing a law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. And so, quite literally, the law, ladies and gentlemen, leads to a dead-end street. Now, I suppose if I was to just close the Bible and pronounce the benediction, half of y'all need counseling at this point. (laughs) Because there's some pretty bad news, awful news, in fact. That is until we get to verse 21 of chapter 3, which is arguably the most important verse in the entire English Bible. Because verse 21 starts off with the phrase, but now. And how many of you know that each time you hear that phrase, but now, or but God in the Bible, you can always anticipate a reason to give God praise. It says, but now, he says, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. (laughs) There's no difference, Jew or Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. Can somebody say grace is greater? (laughs) Yeah, That's pretty much what Paul says here. In fact, our sin, ladies and gentlemen, is no match for God's grace. And that's what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate a God who is gracious. You see, some of you just missed your shout right there. I don't know. I mean, he says, right, now a righteousness from God apart from law, which means I no longer have to earn it. It is a free gift once bound by my sin and shame and once powerless to change but now a righteousness from God has been made known and so we give God glory and we give God praise why because grace has set us free finally from the tyranny of the law well this yeah you better give him praise because he deserves it absolutely but this does lead to a couple of questions a few hypothetical questions in fact rhetorical questions and Paul sort of anticipates these questions and anticipates some objections to this. Because every time you talk about grace and you talk about it too much, it's easy to leave the wrong impression on folks' minds. And it's a misunderstanding. And Paul anticipates this in verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul's first question is this, and this is in the minds of his readers and his audience. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I mean, if God is in the saving business and he's just lavishing us with, with his grace, then that means I could just live any old kind of way I want to live. I mean, he isn't concerned about that. And yeah, I could just live any kind of way I want. And Paul's response to that is, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Kareem Smith paraphrase version. But no, he says, by no means, he says. For we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer, he says. And unless I'm misunderstanding something, dead people don't sin. Dead people don't walk around committing adultery. Dead people don't walk around lying. Dead people don't walk around breaking God's laws. And furthermore, verse 14 says this, Sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. The Greek word for master here is kiriou, which is where we get our English word Lord. And so another way to read verse 14 is, sin shall not be your Lord, because you are no longer under law, but under grace. Which, by the way, raises the second hypothetical question, rhetorical question. Because verse 15 says, what then shall we say now then, Paul? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? You see, first there's dumb, and then there's dumber. <laughs> but this strikes home for a lot of us. Because you can you see in the minds of Paul's audience, they were looking for an easy way out to continue to sin. But I don't know about you, but, I, you know, there's several people that I've come in contact with throughout my life's journey. And you may know somebody like this as well, who's claimed to be a Christian, but there's not an ounce of difference in their life to indicate that they know Jesus and that they're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I used to know a guy like this. He said to me, he said the sinner's prayer once. It was with a pastor, and the pastor led him in this prayer. Repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I confess, I confess. And So he said the prayer, and he got up wasn't a bit of change in his life. He was still running around, committing adultery on his wife, and he's still wilding out on the streets and all. I mean, his life was a wreck. And so I tried to encourage him and the Lord and ask him, you know, hey, you know there is a such thing called repentance? <laughs> have you heard of it? And he says, well, the pastor told me all I have to do is say this prayer and I'm in. I don't really have to change, do I? And I say, yes. <laughs> yes, you absolutely do. Faith without works is what? Faith without works is dead. Now, don't get me wrong, people. God loves us just the way we are. Amen? I mean... God loves us just the way we are, amen? Amen. But God loves us too much to leave us just the way we are. And so there is no such thing in the Christian life and walk as an autonomous saint. And so we have to look forward to changing. But in the minds of Paul's audience, they were thinking, not me. (laughs) I'm looking for a way out. I mean, since I'm no longer obligated to conform to the law, whether that be mosaic or moral, and since I'm forgiven and justified and and set free by faith, then that means that I'm free to live the human experience any kind of way I choose to. I can sin with impunity. And what Paul says to us, as well as the readers, is that you can try it if you want to, but just know that there are binding consequences to the choices we make. There are binding consequences to the choices we make. And notice the first consequence shows up right away in verse 16. Choose sin, and you can expect to inherit death. Choose sin, inherit death. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, You are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Choose sin, inherit death. It's a given. You know, about a year ago, our family uh, purchased our first family pet. My daughters, they've been after me for years about getting them a little puppy. And as much as I was adamantly opposed, I suck. I was a sucker, y'all. I caved. I got to admit, I just caved. And what got me was my little daughter, my youngest one. She's got these artistic skills. And she started to draw little puppy pictures with tears in their eyes. And, <laughs> and she would put them on my nightstand for me to see with little messages. Dad, we promise we'll clean up behind them. And so I thought, what's the, what's the harm in going to the puppy pound and just looking? right? That's all I'm doing is is looking. Before you know it, we saw this little Jack Russell mixed terrier come out, and he jumped on our lap, and oh, Lord, pray for me. (laughs) I mean, he's as cute as he can be. We named him Biscuit. He's little brown. He's brown and white, and so when Biscuit was at the poppy pound, Biscuit was well-behaved. He was really nice and cute and cuddly, but when we got home, oh, he starts to be all hyper. He's chewing on everything. Oh, Lord, pray for me. <laughs> but it didn't take long after we brought little Biskie Boo home <laughs> that we realized right away who his master was. You see, the fact of the matter is that Biscuit has six different owners, but only one of us is his master. You see, his master is the one who holds the treats. <laughs> Because if you hold the treats, you can get little Boo to roll over, and you can get Biscuit to sit down. If you hold the treats, you can get Biscuit to settle down a little bit. You see, Biscuit is a slave to whoever holds the treats. And Biscuit ain't too different from many of us. Second Peter says this. It says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. You know, typically when we think of slavery, it conjures up negative images of our history, of our country's past. Issues of chattel slavery where my ancestors were shackled and brought across the Atlantic Ocean and forced into the slave trade and forced to do work with no pay. And to this day, there's been no recompense. But when Paul talks about slavery, he has in mind the word doulos, the Greek word doulos. And it was a wide range of application that we have here in meaning and contextually speaking. In chapter six, it's the idea of a bond servant, or somebody who's who's willingly devotes themselves to the service and loyalty of another. And you can see where Paul's getting at here. He's pretty much saying that if we choose sin, then what we're doing is we're making sin out to be our lord. And if we make sin out to be our Lord, then guess what that leads to? It leads to a life of bondage. And that bondage inevitably leads to death. Verse 21 says it. Verse 21 says that what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And when Paul talks about death, He's using death as a metaphor to describe the troubled life that sin produces. This is the the morally frustrated and hopeless life of despair that we encounter when we seek to live independently outside of the will of God. This type of death can come in many different forms. There's a physical death. Obviously, we all know what that is. And that physical death can come as a result of risky behavior or violence or drug abuse, all of which are sin, which leads to death. Uh, There's mental and emotional death that uh, comes in the form of repeated patterns of sin uh, that causes mental disorders and stress and crippling depression. There's spiritual death, which ultimately leads to our separation from God from eternity. But Paul's showing us here that we have a choice in the matter. We can choose sin and inherit death, yes, but there's a second option here. Verse 17, choose Christ and you can inherit life. Choose Christ and inherit life. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted with. Now, what is this form of teaching? The form of teaching that Paul alludes to here is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He just spent five and a half chapters expounding upon this glorious and grand revelation that it is through Jesus Christ that believers have been ransomed and set free and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And what Paul says as a result of this in verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves To righteousness in other words there are two domains now for us as Christians to choose there's two domains there is the domain of sin and death and then there's the domain of righteousness what Paul says here is that whatever domain we serve will be the domain that dominates that dominates our lives Whatever domain we serve will be the domain that dominates. You know, I used to work out at Planet Fitness a while back. Y'all can tell, can't you? (laughs) Just joking. Pandemic came, I put it down. I blame it on the pandemic, (laughs) y'all. But there's something uniquely contradictory about Planet Fitness you go into the doors, you see right there on the front desk, they got this big mountain of, of this pan filled with candy. I mean, it's got suckers in there, Tootsie Rolls, all kinds of sweets, and you can eat as much as you want. Tuesdays, they have free pizza and soda. It's like, what are they trying to do? You hop on the treadmill and the bike, and up above you are television monitors. And some of those television monitors are airing the food network. to tempt you with food. I'm seeing fried chicken and and ribs. I don't know whether to eat or work out. And so they're tempting you with all of this stuff. It all seems sort of paradoxical until you read their slogan on the wall. Because on the back of their wall, there reads this slogan, This is a judgment-free zone. The choice is yours. In other words, they're saying you can eat to your heart's delight. You can gorge as much as you want. You can work out or you can watch television. It really doesn't matter. This is a judgment-free zone. But right underneath that banner, there's another television monitor. And airing on repeat is the reality show, My 600-Pound Life. (laughs) And so you can see what Planet Fitness is out to do. They're trying to communicate something to us. They're saying to us, yes, you can can do whatever you want to do. You can live whatever kind of lifestyle you want. The choice is yours. But just remember, there are binding consequences (laughs) to the choices we make. And Paul says here the same thing. The choice is ours. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can choose to live under the domain of sin and death. Yes. And you can choose to stay stuck if you want to. You can choose to live a complacent lifestyle, this absent and void of Jesus being represented in your life. Yes, have your way, but just know that all that's going to lead to is a morally frustrated, dead, dormant life of self-inflicted pain and misery that ultimately leads to death. But we have another choice. Choose sin, inherit death. Choose life, inherit uh, choose Christ, and inherit life, but not just any old kind of life. We have the abundant, fruit-filled life promised to us by our Lord Jesus. In verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. You see, holiness here denotes a life of sanctification. It's the idea that we are now set apart and now live lives that honor and please the Lord. As much as we were once sinners on a path to destruction that ultimately led to sin, bondage, and death, we are equally now on a path to holiness and sanctification, and truth, and goodness, and the fruits of the Spirit. You see, once we transfer out of the realm of darkness, we are now transferred into the realm of righteousness, where we can now put into practice all of these virtues that come from the Spirit living His His life in and through our lives. Now, some of you may be wondering this morning, how do we make this practical? Because I hear you, he's saying. He's saying, I, I hear you, Pastor. You're saying we need, to, we need to live better lives and, and we need to live lives that exemplify the fact that we know that I hear what you're saying, but you don't understand. I have all these hurts and hang-ups and, and habits that just keep me down. I try my hardest to be righteous, but the more I try, the more I fail. Where can I get help from to help me put this into practice? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because Romans... 619 answers this question for us. Paul says here in verse 19, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them as sla- in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness." Offer them to righteousness leading to holiness. This is the best news that you and I can hear as believers in Jesus Christ this morning. The best news that you could ever hear is that the battle and the war is already won. The war is already won. We just need to yield our wills to the influence and power that comes with this new regime of operation and authority. And in this new regime, we have Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, who empowers us to live out every single thing that he's commanded. The war is already won and over. You see, far too often we make the mistake as Christians in assuming that that our sanctification is solely upon us. We got to work a little harder at the oars and we got to grind it out. And we got, yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. We need to work out our salvation, no question about it. But what Paul is showing us in this text is that our sanctification stems from a positional stance of righteousness. It begins there. It begins with our identity in Christ having been called and declared righteous. So aptly named is this Romans series, our identity matters. Because Paul, remember, he declares, he says in Romans chapter 5, we have been declared righteous. And so, what Paul's showing us is that sanctification stems first and foremost from an understanding of that unique position and status as righteous. It's righteousness that leads to holiness, he says in verse 19. It's righteousness that leads to holiness. It's not holiness that leads to righteousness. There is a cause and effect, but you got to get it straight. In other words, you're not righteous today because you're holy. You are holy because you've been declared righteous. And it's from that state of righteousness that you are now able to live a holy and sanctified life. This is who we are in Jesus having been declared by God righteous, then what God expects for us to do is begin to act like that which is already true of our lives. So might as well come on out. (laughs) Like what Tony Evans says, everybody else coming out the closet, you might as well come out too. (laughs) And begin to act like that which is already declared true of you. You know, before I came to the Lord, I had this, this nasty little habit of cussing. Anybody cuss out here? I thought I'd get y'all. So some of y'all actually raise your hand. Look at you. <laughs> Tell the truth, shame the devil. <laughs> I used to cuss all the time. But when I got saved, something changed. It clicked in my heart. So I remember reading a passage of Scripture that says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is uh, profitable for building others up. And so I remember one day I'm just hanging out with the fellas, and I, and I let one fly. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I felt convicted over it. And I said, man, something's got to change in my life. i don't. know, I got to give this up. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit whispered into my soul, I can help you with that if you give me more of your life. If you yield yourself to me now it wasn't the Holy Spirit condemning me it wasn't the Holy Spirit that was making me feel but he was he was conforming me more into the image of what has already been declared true of me which is righteous he's saying I can help you live this thing out if you yield yourself more to my influence he wasn't just laying a guilt trip on me instead he was guiding me into this new realm of operation, which is the new realm called righteous. It's a righteous realm which comes with authority and empowerment from the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit helps us to act like the righteous men and women we've already been declared to be, and I'm so happy he helped me because it's been a whole week now since I... Co- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's been a month. (laughs) (laughs) But perhaps God is speaking to somebody this morning as we close. And For far too long, you have been making excuses to sin. And you come in here with the impression that you can just rationalize your way out of it and just continue to exploit God's grace. You're saying to yourself, I got immunity over this anger issue in my life. And I have immunity now over this hatred in my heart. I have immunity over this lust and this lying spirit. I don't have to change anything because God accepts me just the way I am. What God's reminding us this morning is that we're only deceiving ourselves when we believe this lie. I read a quote not too long ago that says, Sin is like a credit card. Enjoy now, but you pay later. And I thought how clever that phrase is because it pretty much summarizes this whole entire message. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the verse we read together in unison, summarizes what Paul shares with us today. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the choice is yours. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the word of God that challenges us today to yield more of our lives to the influence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel which declares men and women righteous, set free because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But Lord, you don't end there. You expect us to practice who we are in Christ. Practice this lifestyle of holiness and sanctification, having first understood what is true of our identity. Lord, will you help us to live this out by the Holy Spirit's power and enablement? And I pray for those here this morning who's yet to place their faith and trust in Jesus, that you give them the faith enough to believe the gift of your grace, to be able to respond even today to receive free of charge forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in that one person's life, that, however many people are out there. And we just thank you for your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.